Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be sharing with you, whether you are watching online or listening in your car or whether you're worshiping in Vaughan this morning. My name is Tony. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, I spend most of my time in Bolton as I'm the site pastor of our Bolton congregation. Uh, but it's great to be sharing with you all this morning or wherever you are or whenever you are in the course of this week. Um, you know, I'm not sure what this day or what this past week has been like for you, whether it's been an up week or a down week. You know, we all have our ups and downs. We all have, no matter who we are good days and bad days. Um, but for most of us, um, sooner or later, if we live long enough, and for a number of us, it doesn't even have to take living that long. There are times and there are seasons in life where we experience moments or experiences that are more than just the simple ups and downs that come with everyday life. They, those bigger, more significant experiences that like shake us to the core whether it's some kind of trauma that you've gone through, whether it's a tragedy, whether it's a heartbreak. Um, these are things that we all inevitably, sooner or later in our life, we experience these things that actually change the landscape of our lives. They, they, they change how we think about life, about the people around us, about our family life, about the world around us, and even about God. You know, for, for years in my family anyways, we used to occasionally like muse at the fact that we hadn't actually experienced many of these kind of landscape changing um, experiences um, in our whole family. And every once in a while we would kind of make a comment, a lighthearted comment about that until about two and a half years ago. And that was one that was an absolutely rocking experience, not just for me, but for our whole family. About two and a half years ago, my sister-in-law, my brother's wife died. 
She died from liver disease. After about a six month stay in the hospital over that time, there was many actually ups and downs along that time, but over the time, her health continued to, de to, to deteriorate and eventually we lost her about two and a half years ago. She was 44 years old. Um, she left behind uh, her husband, my brother. They had been married for almost 10 years. She left behind their two small kids who were six and eight at the time that, they, that, that she died. And the best word that I can think of or that I ever use whenever I talk about this experience, like what it felt like for me and for our family, I would say this was like an earthquake moment in the life of our family. And the way that it felt like, it was like my brother and his kids were kind of at the epicenter of this earthquake. Their lives had been radically rocked, radically changed and altered. But the rest of us in our family, my parents, my sister, um, Kat and I and our families, we were kind of like the, you know, like the tectonic plates that make up the world that kind of surrounded the epicenter. And when, when this earthquake struck, it was like this moment that, that literally changed the landscape of our family dynamic forever. It, it left our family, obviously it left my brother and his kids like, like a, a radically changed, but it left our family changed. There was now this, this like hole in our family, the loss of my sister-in-law, and it was a hole that could never be filled or replaced or whatever. Um, it was, it left what I would say is as like a, an ongoing sorrow that remains in the life of my family, even to this day. And we don't always talk about it, but there's something about it that remains there always, every time we get together and for each of us individually. Um, it rocked me. It was an earthquake moment that rocked me. It left me heartbroken um, for my brother and for his kids and the fact that now they were going to need to figure out what it meant to navigate through life with as a family of three instead of four. My brother now without a wife, uh, my niece and nephew now without a mom, like what was that going to mean for them? It, it left me shaken and frankly kind of shocked. Um, that death had actually been the outcome of this story because this is not what I was expecting. Um, my sister-in-law's life had actually been one that was like full of miracles, actually. Um, she had lived through a life of all sorts of like, uh, actually like incredibly unlikely stories of healing and of health considering her story. Um, about 20 years before or so, she had actually uh, contact or contracted a liver disease. Uh, she went through a period of that and needed a liver transplant. There were complications eventually with that liver. She needed a second liver transplant. There were more com complications. She actually got cancer on her second liver. Well, this is now her third liver that she had inside her body. She got cancer. The doctors tried everything they could do. Eventually said, there's nothing more that you can do. You need to put your things in order and prepare for the worst. Well, they stopped all medical treatment. She prayed and studied and sought God and, and actually without the help of any medication, gradually her body began, began to get healthier. And over the course of several months, it turned out she didn't have cancer anymore. The doctors couldn't explain it. It was miraculous. But now, like after all that, and that was many years before, there was all sorts of other stories that she had had where God was like sustaining her and giving her a kind of health that was not normal. And so it was like, how after all of that could this story end like this? How is it that that's even possible? This was not something that I was expecting. And so it rocked me in terms of my faith. Um, 
it caused me to have to rethink and reevaluate. And, and frankly, friends, there's many ways that I'm still rethinking this and resorting this out in terms of how I understand things like prayer to work, how I understand what I understand faith to be, what hope actually means, how, how we how we um, pursue and pray for healing in the midst of this life, knowing that we believe in a God who does heal, but not always. This is this is a not always story in my life. Um, you know, we actually had, we ourselves, both Kat and I and others around, actually strongly sense God specifically giving promises for His healing for my sister-in-law. And that didn't happen. So it rocked me. It rocked my faith. did more than that. It, it rocked me vocationally. And, and, uh, and here's what I mean by that. There was actually a, a period of time where I was actually significant, or like seriously considering whether I needed to resign from my role here at Upper Room and move out and, uh, and move closer into the town where my brother lived so that we could just be closer to him, just practically to help him and to support him with his two kids now that he was alone. But there was a bigger part of kind of what rocked me in that. There was a, there, for some uh, period of time actually, leading up to the point before where my sister-in-law got sick, um, they were actually sensing that God was kind of leading them into some new directions, that God was putting like a new calling on their lives. And so they were putting plans actually in place to make some changes in their life because they felt like God was leading them in this certain direction. Then all of a sudden she got put in the hospital and one week turned into a month, which turned into six months, which turned into losing her. And it was like, how, how does this work? It, it, there seemed to be a calling that God was putting on, our li on their lives and now all of a sudden this was taken away. And so who is I to assume that I could or that I should hold on to my calling any tighter than they had the right to hang on to their calling? Maybe I needed to let it go. Maybe I needed um, to make this change because my brother had to let go of his calling. And I would say it rocked me even just on a day-to-day -day, um, basis. Like this was about two and a half years ago. This is, I mean, our church is, seems to be always in a season where things are moving. Um, and two and a half years ago, it was no different. Uh, this is a good thing. I love that about our church. Man, we're stepping into, you know, like where God is leading us in all sorts of ways. But it was a season where we were particularly kind of taking some big steps for the first time into this multi-site vision that we have as a, as a church. And things were changing rapidly rapidly all around us, the um, organizationally and even pastorally, like my role in all sorts of ways was becoming more complex. Our church was becoming more complex. The train just kept rolling on and I needed to stop. I needed to slow down. There was so much stuff going on inside me that I did not have the capacity for a significant period, like a number of months. I just did not have the capacity to carry on the loads that the pastoral role here required. And so, you know, honestly, friends, there were days that I could not do much more than look out my window and sob. And I'm not exaggerating. I was not okay. And if you've been with us for the last couple weeks, you know that we're in the middle of this series, this teaching series that we're calling I'm Not Okay, 
right? We're talking through what it looks like to seek God and to find God in the midst of these times and these experiences in our lives when we need to put up our hand and say, I'm not okay. Whatever we might be struggling with, whether it's, whether it's mental health issues, things like depression or addiction or abuse, today we're talking about what it looks like to seek God and to find God in the midst of our grief and loss. <clears throat> Friends, that's just my story. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, I think probably most of you in the room um, have your own stories as well your own stories of earthquake moments, of experiences of loss that have left you broken and bewildered and confused and disoriented, that have left you on the couch sobbing, things that have changed the landscape of your life. And this can look like all sorts of things for all sorts of us. You know, for some of you, it's a similar experience like I've had. It's the death of a loved one. For others, it could look like all sorts of things. For some of us, it's the loss of our marriage. Maybe you've, you've had to walk through like a really difficult or messy divorce or an affair, and now you've got to figure out what it looks like to navigate through life as a single person. <clears throat> For some of us, it's the breakdown of a close relationship. So maybe there's a family member or a close friend that's been a loyal friendship and there's been a beautiful thing for many years, but now for whatever reason, it's blown up and it's like you just can't even bear to talk to that person anymore. For some of us, it's a health crisis. <clears throat> Maybe you've had a diagnosis of a disease or a close family member have that you know has, has significant implications for you and for your family. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Perhaps you've been in like a, a stable, steady work environment for a number of years, but now for whatever reason, you've been given your papers, you've been walked out the door. And so what does it look like now to live life without that thing that has been that source of stability for you for so long? And then I think for many of us, there's ways that loss and pain and sorrow hit us that are maybe a little less concrete, but they are no less significant in their impact in our lives. For some of us, it's coming to terms with the loss of our youth. It's like it's aging. It's the impact that aging and getting older has on our bodies, has on our work, has on our independence, has on our ability to influence and contribute meaningfully into the places that we're involved in. <clears throat> It rocks us. Um, for some of us, it's a loss not in terms of something that has happened, but in terms of something that can't happen or won't happen. So for some of us, it might be a struggle with infertility and wrestling with the questions of the fact that <clears throat> I don't know if I will ever or I know I will never be able to have kids. That will not be a part of our life. Maybe for some, like I know for some um, who uh, are people that are adopted, you might need to wrestle with the fact that you may never be able to actually meet face-to-face -face your biological parents. For some of us, it's about what we know we will never be able to do or won't be able to do. And then for, for many of us, I think we all need to wrestle with just the expectations of a future that just is not going to pan out. Maybe you had, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, you had a certain vision in mind of what your life was going to look like right now, what your family was going to look like, what your marriage was going to look like, what your kids were going to look like, right? Maybe 10 or 20 years ago, you had this ideal image in mind and the way that life has penned out looks nothing like that image. And so what does that mean for us? And these are all things that can like, be earthquake moments for us, earthquake experiences. They rock us. They, they cause us to wrestle with a landscape that has changed in our lives that will never go back to the way it was before. They bring questions and confusion about life, about ourselves, about the world, about God. 
Listen to what uh, Tim Keller wrote in his book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He said, No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. Friends, we build our lives around this pursuit of acquiring more, right? That is what our culture is sort of focused on. We want more education and more wealth and more stuff and a bigger house and a better job and all these things. But one of the things that we will be guaranteed to acquire in this life, even though we do all sorts of things to try to avoid it, is sorrow. And unfortunately, we live in a time and we live in a culture that doesn't actually offer us a whole lot to navigate through our grief and our sorrow and the losses that we experience in life. Our culture actually has this way of kind of pushing out grief and sorrow from kind of like the, the cultural set of expectations that we have on life. We have this cultural expectation. We see it in all sorts of ways, some explicit, some a little bit more subtle, that the, the life should always be trending up and to the right, right? We, we, we are a culture of bigger and better and more. We celebrate success and wealth and accumulation. It's about more. It's not about less. It's about acquiring. It's not about losing. And so, though we know, we understand, we get that grief and loss are a part of life, life we kind of treat it, we kind of see it like the, weir like the weird uncle in the family, right? We all know that he's part of the family. We just don't want to sit next to him at the table. We just don't want to get stuck in a conversation with him in the room. Why? Because if we do, if he gets too close, then we know he's going to make us feel weird and uncomfortable and awkward in our own skin. And we don't even know how to talk to him. And so we use all sorts of tactics, all sorts of ways to kind of try to minimize and cut down the tensions that we feel around pain and sorrow and loss. And so we deny it. We just say, well, it's, not, it's, just, it's just not even there. It's not really a loss. We minimize it. We say, okay, yeah, it is, it is something that I'm sad about, but you know, I'll get over it. <clears throat> we distract ourselves we, we, with, with screens, with, with overwork, with addictions, you know, or substances or whatever it means. We talked about that last week. We blame others for our sorrows and our losses. You know why? Because anger is often a much easier emotion to express and in some ways safer emotion to express than sadness and sorrow. Friends, all these things, these are, these are deeply ingrained things in our culture and they keep us, they keep us from being well-schooled in the language of grief. And so when people around us are experiencing sorrow or loss, we don't know what to say. We want to offer comfort. We want to give encouragement. We want to help people feel better. We don't want them to stay in a dark place. And yet, we struggle to find any words that will help accomplish that. And frankly, friends, it's because many of us have not taken the time that we have needed to grieve through our own losses in life. We have cut short our ability to actually truly empathize with people when they are grieving. And so we respond with often, you know, we've heard this many times before, we respond with these kind of cheesy, cliche one-liners all over the place. We talk about things like, well, something good will always come out of something bad, or everything happens for a reason, or we know you're going to get through this, and if that doesn't work, maybe some of us take a bit more of a hard-line approach, and we say, well, you know what? Life goes on, you got to grit your teeth, pull up your socks, and pick up the pieces and move on. That's what you got to do. And, and the crazy thing is, is we all know that these things are not going to help. We know that, and yet we still find them coming out of our 
mouth. We find these words coming out of our mouth all the time. And I think in many ways for people of faith, for followers of Jesus, this can be even more complex because we have imported so many of these kind of cultural ideas and, and expectations into our faith. And so we just kind of spiritualize success and bigger and, bore and, and better and more. We sort of, we just, we put a Jesus skin on it. And so we talk so much, right? And as we should, these are good things to be focused on the resurrection of Jesus, on the victory of Jesus. But we do that at the exclusion of the cross of Jesus, of the suffering of Jesus, even of the battle that needs to happen for victory to come out of. And so we operate with, with all these assumptions in our faith that if Jesus has risen from the dead, then life should just pick up and go on from there. And so that's what we sing about. It's what we pray about. It's what we read about. It's often what we preach about. <clears throat> and so when sorrow and loss do come into our lives, we are left rocked with all of these questions about our faith. Like, who is God then? If he has allowed this to come into our lives, where was God? Where was God when, when this was going on? When will God... When will God make this stop? When will God bring a better day? When will God make the sun shine again? And, and of course, why God? Why have you let this happen into my life? Why, why have you not let this happen in my life? There's so many whys. Friends, grief is the place where we must come to terms with on one hand the presence and promises of God and on the other hand the realities of our own experience. Grief is that place we need to come to terms with the presence and the promises of God on the one hand and the realities of our own experience on the other. But you know what? We don't know how to do that. <clears throat> so instead, many of us go down one of a couple different roads. For many of us, we go down the road of grieving without God. And so we leave God behind because... <clears throat> We don't know how to bring God into our grief. We are left with so much confusion, so many questions, so much disorientation, that the only way we know how to reconcile these two things is to abandon God altogether, to leave Him behind and say, okay, so if this has happened, God must not exist in my life. And I would say that leaves us cynical at best, but at worst, it leaves us in a place of despair. For, other, for others of us, we, we, we can't bring ourselves to leave God out of the picture. And so instead what we do is we don't grieve at all. <laughs> we cover over our grief with all these false and these shallow cliches, right? About God's promises for good and working good things out of bad things and all. And so we have all sorts of ways that we can spiritualize our denial and our minimize, minimalization and our distraction from the sorrows and losses in our lives. But friends, you know what that does? It leaves us in a non-reality. It leaves us simply as people who are not being honest. And so at best, it leaves us with a false joy and a shallow peace. At worst, it leaves us naive and immature and in a place of non-reality. Listen to this from uh, Pete Scazzaro. He wrote uh, a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. There's a whole beautiful chapter on grief and loss in it. This is what he says from that chapter. He says, Our culture routinely interprets losses as alien invasions that interrupt our normal lives. We numb our pain through denial, blaming, rationalizations, addictions, and avoidance. We search for spiritual shortcuts around our wounds. We demand others take away our pain. Yet we all face many deaths within our lives. The choice is whether these deaths will be terminal, crushing our spirit and life, or open us up to new possibilities and depths of transformation in Christ. 
So friends, when we are faced with one of these earthquake experiences, I know many of you have been faced with many of these earthquake experiences, what does it look like for us to grieve with God? And as we've been saying for the last couple weeks, we're using the Psalms as a guide through this series, partly because they are the prayer book of the Bible, right? The Psalms have, have always kind of meant to be the prayer manual for God's people. They meant to teach us actually how to approach God and how to come to God, how to train us to pray both individually, but also when we come together. <clears throat> but I think the other thing that is so important for us to recognize is that the Psalms are no stranger to sorrow. In fact, most of the books of the Bible are are no stranger to sorrow. Most of the books, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, were actually written by people who were in the midst of incredibly difficult experiences, experiences where they were feeling pain and loss and grief. They were written by individuals who were in a state of grief, writing to a community of people who were in a place of grief. (laughs) And so, like I said, you know, I think we are just so unfamiliar with the language of grief that we don't even see that when we read the Bible most of the time. But the fact, the fact that grief and sorrow is such a common topic throughout the pages of Scripture, I think that that's really important for us to know because it tells us at least a couple of things. It says, first of all, it says, I probably then have more sorrow than I realize. It's just the fact that, like I said, we're not well-versed at recognizing that sorrow. But the truth is that, friends, sorrow and grief hit us in all sorts of ways at all sorts of times. Most of our life, we are trying to figure out and wrestle through some element of sorrow and loss that has happened to us. Which is why it's so common through the pages of Scripture, because we actually need that kind of guidance. But it also tells us something else. The fact that sorrow and grief is so common through Scripture, it tells us that I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one. And while all of us, in each one of our stories, there are certain unique nuances and experiences that we have all gone through, um, none of us has a claim on pain. My pain and sorrow is not a pain that no one else can understand or enter, enter into. It does not put me into a different league or a different class that kind of isolates me or puts me on a level that no one can speak into that. No, actually God wants to speak into it. And he's done that by surrounding us with people, both past and present people, the writers of the scriptures who actually are giving us over and over uh, 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 tools to navigate and approach God in the midst of our grief. But he's also, surrounded, he's also surrounded us with people in the present who are meant to enter in and to walk with us. So man, it tells us that let's not take the position that I have a claim to pain that no one else can understand. We actually need to invite others in and to invite God in. And the Psalms in particular are a way to do that. Two-thirds of these Psalms are Psalms of lament. They are people pouring out their sorrow and their sadness and their confusion over things that have gone on that have rocked their worlds. And today we're going to look at one of these beautiful examples. It's Psalm 90. It's a psalm of sorrow. It's a psalm that was actually written by Moses. Many of the psalms have been written by David. Maybe you're familiar with that. But this psalm was not written by David. It was written by Moses. And I think that's really cool and really significant for a whole lot of reasons. First reason is because um, since it was written by Moses, it means that this was probably actually the first psalm that was ever penned. Or maybe it was like etched into rock. I don't know um, what, what Moses was doing. But it's probably the first psalm that was ever written. Um, 
And, and it's fascinating to know that the very first psalm that was written, the very first prayer in the prayer manual for God's people was a psalm of sorrow. It was a psalm of lament. But then second, the second thing that I think is really significant for us is that this was Moses that wrote this psalm. And it was a psalm of sorrow. Like most of us, whether you've been part of a church or part of you know, the Christian faith for any period of time, um, even if you haven't, you're probably familiar with the character of Moses, with the person of Moses. Maybe you know some of those classic stories that we have um, about Moses. Um, and when we think about Moses, most of us, we think about a, a man who actually lived this incredible life with God, right? This man that lived through seeing like fascinating, powerful miracles that God did, like powerful things that he was doing, ways that God saved them and freed his people and led them into all sorts of, and did miraculous things on a regular basis. Moses was someone that it says he regularly actually spoke to God face to face. <clears throat> and so it's incredible to think that as Moses, you know, most people think that he, he wrote this psalm toward the end of his life. And so nearing the end of his life, he's looking back over the years of his long-lived, well-lived life. And the theme that comes out greater than any other theme is sorrow. And what he's doing as he writes this song, I believe, is he's, he's giving us this beautiful pathway of what it looks like to grieve with God. And so I want to walk us through that today and invite you to actually follow this path as you bring to God your own sorrows, your own griefs, your own losses. First thing he does is he actually articulates, in I think a really fascinating way, he articulates his realization of grief. This is how he starts off the psalm. He says, Before the mountains were born, before the earth was created, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He knew. He knew who God was. He knew that He was creator, that, that He was real, that He was the source of all things, that He was big and mysterious and powerful, that we couldn't put words to it. The only words He could say is that you're from everlasting to everlasting. And He knew this because He had walked with God, right? He had seen God work. He had met with Him face to face. And so that leads him to reflect on himself as this realization of grief continues to unfold in the psalm. And he says, <clears throat> in comparison to God, all that we are, all that people are, all that humanity is, is dust. He says, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. And friends, do you know why Moses wrote this? It's because he was feeling this. <laughs> he, had, he had lived this long life. Right, the this, this story tells us he lived to about 120 years old. He had seen a lot. He had journeyed through so many things. And yet he says he, he, he's coming to terms with the fact that his long-lived, well-lived life is nothing more than a breath of smoke. It's here one moment. It's gone the next. And not only that, but he's coming to terms with the fact that this short life that he has lived has been full of sorrow. He says, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet he says, the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. Friends, he's speaking about the realization that we all make when we are, and especially for those of us who are people of faith, when we, when we come to terms with our grief, because this is what he is, he's doing. He's coming to terms with the fact that somehow both God and grief coexist. 
He's saying, like, how can this be? How can it be that God is big and powerful and everlasting and eternal and almighty and good and loving? How can that be? And at the same time, He allows our lives to be so short. And in that short amount of time, He allows our lives to be filled with so much sorrow. How can this be? Like, is He a God of just anger and judgment and wrath? Because that seems to be the question that He is asking over and over throughout this psalm. This, friends, is grief's realization. How can a good God and real grief equally coexist in our lives? How can that be? How can I trust and love the Creator of all things if He has created me to be so frail and weak and prone to sorrow and loss? That's the realization that comes with grief. We need to come to terms with that. That's an uncomfortable question. But Moses doesn't stop his psalm there. He continues on, and I think he leads us to a statement that he makes that I think is so profound. Um, it's a statement that is actually the center of this psalm. It is the anchor point of this psalm. It is a statement that every, um, every sentence before it leads up to, every sentence after it flows out of this statement. And friends, it's a lesson that he cries out to God to teach him. Um, this is what he says. He says, God, teach us to number our days rightly, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is the lesson that he is crying out to God to teach him from his grief. I don't know how to reconcile these two things, that God and grief can coexist. So you know what, Lord? Teach me then. Teach me to number my days rightly. Do you know what he's asking? He's asking God to help him understand what it looks like to live as a person with limits. To number our days, right? To know that we are not going to live forever. To know that our plans and our dreams for this life will not all come true. To know that our efforts in our work, in our family, in whatever we're doing will not always succeed. To know that there will be many things along the way that we cannot control that will bring um, sorrow, sadness, that will steal, that will kill, that will take away our joy. And in the midst of that, to know that God is still God. Teach us to number our days. This is, this is the lesson that Moses cries out to God to say, teach me so that I can gain a heart of wisdom. It is to come to a place with God, an understanding of God that is more real. It's like it's based in more reality, but it's also a bit more complex than kind of the bigger and better and more mentality that we superimpose onto our faith. And, and it's to come to an understanding of ourselves, friends, frankly, that we all need help doing, that we are not the center of the universe, that we are not in control, that the world does not rise and fall on our own happiness and joy. Sorrow and loss are actually meant to lead us into this lesson. They are meant to help us lose our wrong ideas about God, about ourselves, about the world. And Moses is crying out to God. He's saying, look, God, this is the sorrow that I've experienced. So you know what? Don't waste my sorrow. Don't waste it. Teach me this lesson. Help me to grow in this kind of understanding. Teach me to number my days rightly. Friends, if we can learn this lesson, I think this is a lifelong lesson that we need to continue to learn. But man, Moses' psalm actually then leads us into what I think is this beautiful picture of this whole new place 
that this lesson of numbering our days rightly can take us to. It's a whole new destination that grief can lead us to. And it's one that Moses cries out to God, man, would you take me to this new place? You know what it is? It's a place of true intimacy, of closeness, of connection with God that, that cannot exist if we minimize or deny our grief or distract ourselves out of it because it's a place of honesty. But it's also a place where God is not shut out. It's a place where somehow we learn to experience a connection, a love, a joy with God, even in the midst of some of the deepest sorrows that can happen to us. Listen to, listen to what Moses writes. This is incredible. It, it all comes out of this lesson of learning to number our days. He says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. See, he's not asking God to erase the memories of his sorrow. You know, there is a line in there. He says, oh God, how long? Like, take this away, relent, you know? <clears throat> but he's actually asking God for a joy and an intimacy with him, with his love that somehow comes out of his sorrows. That's an incredible, that's a different kind of prayer. I don't pray that prayer most often. I need to learn how to pray that prayer, to ask God to take me into that place. Then he says, May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. See, I love this. He's praying just for himself, but also for the whole next generation, for all the people. He's saying, man, you know what? I cannot always see how you are working. I can't always see your deeds. Would you help me to be able to see your work, to see the splendor of your work, even in the midst of the pain and sorrow that I experience in life? I can't see it. Would you help me see? Man, that's a prayer that is worth praying. And then he goes on, he says, May the favor of our Lord God, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And friends, you know, I think in many ways, I think this is the most incredible plea of Moses' psalm out of all of them. Because he's asking not just for a joy and an intimacy with God, even in the midst of his sorrows. He's asking not just for the ability to see how God is working, even through his sorrows and in his sorrows sorrows and loss. He's actually now, he's asking to be part of that work. I think that's incredible. And he's asking not just for himself, he's asking for the whole community that he's a leader in. Because you know what? That's who they were called to be. They were called to be the people whom, through whom God accomplished his work in the world. And more than anyone else, Moses understood that. Because he was the leader of these people. He understood the calling that God's people had to actually be um, People who bring in and carry out the work of God in the world. And what is that work? Like God's work has always been to heal and to restore and to make new this world that we live in that we know is beautiful in all sorts of ways, but in all sorts of ways is broken and full of pain and suffering and loss. <clears throat> but the way that God seems to do this work he models it through the pages of Scripture. He actually models it in our own lives as well, if we're honest. It's not simply by parachuting in and taking us out of the sorrows and losses in our lives. No, it's first by coming into it. That is the work of God. It's the place where God begins His work. He, he enters into the sorrow of the world. And friends, that is what He has called us to do. To enter into the sorrow of others and in doing that to actually be partners with God in the work that He has for the world. Not just to parachute in and fix it and take people's problems away and to give quick fixes and all these things, <clears throat> but to actually share in others' sorrows with them. To weep, to grieve, to be with others in the midst of their sorrow and loss. 
and to cry out to God with them and for them, man, that he would do these same things that Moses was crying out for. And somehow as we do this, this is actually one of the ways that I think we can so powerfully demonstrate the power of God, the presence of God, the love of God, even in the midst of deep and dark sorrows that people experience. And I say this for a couple reasons, friends. This new destination that when we grieve with God has the possibility of leading us into. This destination of a new intimacy and joy with God. A destination of being able to actually see how He's working, even in our sorrows. And then being able to partner and join Him in His work. I say this, I believe this, because it's happened in my own life. It's happening in my own life. Over the last two and a half years, of, as I've been continuing to work through the, the rocking experience of this earthquake moment, you know, I would say one of the things that happened is it ripped a hole in my heart that kind of cut right to the core of my being. But as I've learned and as I continue to learn to invite God into that hole, you know what He's doing? He's actually filled it in ways that I have never been filled before. And there is an intimacy that I am learning to walk with God. And now I feel like an empowerment to be able to step into some of the sorrows that I see around me in ways that I never could have before. And friends, that is not a journey that is over by any means. But I know I am further along because of these sorrows than I ever would have been before. But that's not the only reason I believe this. <laughs> I believe it because this is also what Jesus has done for us. Right? Like he, he, he came into our world. And it's a world that He came into that was full, we know, beautiful in all kinds of ways, but full of brokenness and sorrow. And, you know, there are some that would say He came into the world and the only reason He came into the world was to die and to die for our sin. And man, I would say, oh, we miss so much of the power and the love of Jesus if that's where we go. He did come into the world to die on the cross and to take our sin on Himself so that we could be freed and live eternally with God. But you know what? He came into the world first to live, to live a life, to live a life where he himself experienced um, a sorrow, loss, loneliness, abandonment, betrayal, confusion, disillusionment. He experienced all of these things himself. And not only that, but he was constantly entering into the sorrow of others as well and sharing it with him. You know, he was called a man of sorrows. This is what the prophet Isaiah called him. And when he died on the cross, because that was the direction his life was taking to him right from the beginning, when he died on the cross, he did die not only to take away our sins and to take our sins on himself, he actually died to take our sorrow on himself too. This is what the prophet Isaiah actually said. Listen. Isaiah said, He was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. This is what Jesus did for us. It's what Jesus does for us. Tim Keller said a little later on in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Listen to this. He says, Look at Jesus. He was perfect, right? And yet he goes around crying all the time. He's always weeping. He's a man of sorrows. Do you know why? Because he's perfect. Because when you are not all absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world. So friends, what does this mean for us then, right? 
well, what does this mean for us who are not okay because of some sorrow or loss? Maybe some earthquake moment that you have experienced. Maybe it was recent, maybe it was a long time ago and you're still trying to figure out how to navigate through that. Man, what is the pathway that Psalm 90 gives us? I'd summarize it into two quick things and I would say these are not quick things. These are not sort of a two-step process. This is a long journey that we embark on. But I would say first, we need to learn how to go there. We need to stop avoiding our pain and our losses. We need to instead acknowledge them for what they are, learn to live in reality. And some of us need to learn to do this with our own grief, where we stop denying or minimizing or avoiding or blaming or doing all the different tactics that we have to employ to sort of um, not face our grief. Some of us need to learn to do this with someone else in your life that you know is grieving. You need to stop trying to fix it. You, know, you need to stop trying to see the bright side or give these shallow encouragements and one-liners, all these things. We need to learn to simply be in our grief and call it what it is. Listen to an, another um, excerpt from Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, Turning toward our pain is counterintuitive. But in fact, the heart of Christianity is that the way to life is through death. The pathway to resurrection is through crucifixion. As children, creating a defensive wall to shield us from our pain is healthy. But as we mature into adulthood, emotional and spiritual adulthood, we must mature through our defense mechanisms of denial in favor of honestly looking at what is true, at reality. So friends, we need to go there. We need to learn how to go there. <clears throat> and then we need to learn how to go there with God. <laughs> We need to actually learn what it looks like to bring our grief and God into the same room. How to, how to face our grief without at the same time turning, turning our back on God. And so we need to learn to pray, I think, in different ways. Um, bigger prayers, more complex, layered prayers than simply, Oh God, would you take my sorrow away? Not that we don't pray that. I don't think we stop praying that. But man, you know what? We need, to, I, we need to learn how to ask God to not waste our sorrow. Don't waste my sorrow, God. Instead, teach me to number my days right that I can gain a heart of wisdom. Bring me into kind of a knowledge, a deeper intimacy, and even joy and satisfaction in you that somehow comes out of my sorrows. Help me see. Help me see how you have been at work, how you are at work, how you will be at work, even with and in and through and around my sorrows and losses. And prayers that even invite God to actually use our losses somehow as a training tool somehow to equip us, to empower us, to actually do His work in the world, to enter into the sorrows of others. Oh, God, man, that you would teach us to grieve like that. that. That He would teach us to walk with others through their grief like that, in a way that actually bears the marks of our own grief. You know what, friends, that's what Jesus has done for us. That's what He wants to do through us. And so can we pray together? God, you hold our grieving hearts. And you yourself grieve with us and for us. And so would you just use our grief to teach us to number our days rightly? Would you meet us in our sorrow by filling our wounds with your love? Would you show us how you are working even in and through our sorrows? And as you do, 
would you give us like a whole new way, a whole new capacity to carry the sorrows of others as well. Amen.